This summer, the world must answer one question. Why has no one made a popsicle that gets you high yet? That's right, it's summer, and it's time for you to get your hands on America's new favorite product, Danksicles. 20 milligrams of THC in two great flavors, the latest and greatest innovation from IndiCloud. Is IndiCloud the greatest company to come out of America? Maybe. But what we do know for sure is that IndiCloud is the best way to get dispensary-grade cannabis delivered directly to your door, 100% legally. Yes, they ship legally to all states. No medical card needed. Whether it's vapes as big as your head, flowers you won't find in your mom's garden, or of course, popsicles that get you high as What are you waiting for? Go to indicloud.co slash spring24 and get discreet delivery on top shelf THC products. Head over to indicloud.co slash spring24. That's co, not com, to snag 30% off your first order. Hey everyone, konnichiwa, Nikki Young here, back with my new true crime channel, Serial Napper. Thanks so much for tuning in. I know there are so many incredible true crime podcasts out there, and the fact that you've added me to your playlist means the absolute world to me, seriously. I hope everyone is staying safe, staying healthy. We're now entering eight weeks of homeschooling my son here in Tokyo. There's been lots of laughs, lots of (laughs) tears, and a lot of wine on my behalf, but we're hanging in there, and I hope that you are too. Crazy times, but I really think we're going to get through it. So tonight, we're taking it back to Canada and talking about one of Canada's worst serial killers. Now, Canada is incredibly safe. Our crime rates are typically quite low, but in my personal opinion, the serial killers that we do have coming out of Canada are particularly heinous. You've likely heard of Paul Bernardo, Carla Homolka, Luke Magnata, Russell Williams, am I right? Well, tonight we're covering the story of Bruce MacArthur. I had just moved to Tokyo when his name started hitting the headlines of national newspapers in Canada, so I honestly hadn't heard too much about it. But my husband was the one, he mentioned it, he said I should talk about Bruce, and after a bit of research, my mind kind of exploded, and I knew I had to cover this case. I'm surprised with so many victims, this incident hasn't really been talked about more. It kind of makes me wonder if it's because of the sexuality of the victims. But I digress. There's really never been anything like this seen in the LGTB community in Toronto. And honestly, hopefully there never will be. But before we get started, I want to chat about a little giveaway I have going on. We are ending the near of April, so this giveaway will soon be over, but you can find all of the details over on my Facebook page. I'm giving away a true crime subscription box from Just Killin' Time. Like I said, you have until the end of April to enter this giveaway, so make sure you check that out over on my Facebook page. All of the details are pinned to the top of the page, And if you're looking where to find me, that's facebook.com slash serial napper. 
That's S-E-R-I-A-L-N-A-P-P-E-R. Seriously, guys, you want this box and you only have a few more days left to enter. Okay, let's dive right into the murders of Bruce MacArthur, the biggest piece of wet lettuce Toronto has ever seen. Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur, who went by the name Bruce, was born on October 8, 1951, in Lindsay, Ontario. He was raised on a farm in Argyle, which is about 60 kilometers north of Oshawa, Ontario. In addition to raising MacArthur and his sister, his parents fostered troubled children from Toronto. There was often six to ten other kids in their care at any given time. Because of their good nature of taking in these children, his parents were well known in the community and overall they had a really good reputation in the area. MacArthur attended a one-room old schoolhouse outside of Woodville. His classmates recalled that he was somewhat of a teacher's pet. He would actually tattle on the other boys at school who were misbehaving, which of course isolated him from his classmates and meant that he spent most of his time alone. He never really got into any trouble himself. He was always very well behaved and a decent student. Bruce was a singer and he was well known for winning singing contests. He grew up with an Irish Catholic mother and a Scottish Presbyterian father, so it was an incredibly religious house. As you can imagine, he went to church every Sunday, and while he felt that from a fairly young age he might be gay, he really struggled with his sexuality because of his religious parents. He kept it a secret, and he tried to push any desire, any thoughts, down, 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 which is always a recipe for disaster. Denying who you are can create a certain turmoil within yourself. When he was 23, Bruce married Janice Campbell, a girl he had met and dated since he was in high school. This just furthered his plan to live and appear as a straight man. Although internally, he knew he was gay He continued to try to ignore it and hide it as much as possible. But eventually, he began to come apart at the seams. In the 70s, Bruce worked at Eaton's. If you're Canadian, you know exactly what Eaton's is, but basically, it's a Canadian department store. Damn, I miss Eaton's. By 1981, Bruce and Janice had a daughter, Melanie, and a son named Todd. Bruce became very active in his church. He had grown up in the church, and so it just felt natural. He kept himself busy to avoid any homosexual thoughts he was having at the time. By all accounts of his friends, neighbors, and community, he was a very generous guy. He hosted Christmas luncheons, and he even played the role of Santa Claus at the mall every holiday season. He had a very unthreatening appearance— round features, and a broad, cheery smile. The way he looked would have made him appear to be approachable to children shopping with their parents, as well as to gay men seeking a sexual encounter with someone that they felt like they could trust. When he was let go from Eaton's, he began to work as a traveling salesman for McGregor Socks, working completely by himself and traveling from town to town, soliciting department stores to carry his merchandise. 
This gave him a bit of freedom away from home, his kids, and his wife. It also gave him the opportunity to begin to open up and explore his sexuality. MacArthur began having sexual affairs with men in the early 1990s. Eventually, he felt that he had to come out to his wife, but they agreed to remain living together mostly for financial reasons. Basically, they were struggling to pay the mortgage and other bills were piling up, so divorcing at the time would have been too expensive. Sometime after 1993, MacArthur's employment came to an end. The couple mortgaged their home in 1997. They separated and declared bankruptcy in 1999. That's when Bruce became truly free to live his life the way that he had wanted, as a gay man. Bruce moved to Toronto, which had a much more lively and supportive gay community at the time than little old Oshawa did. He began a four-year relationship with a man that would eventually fall apart. He also started using dating apps to find men to hook up with, and it's said that this is when his dark side began to emerge. MacArthur was into binding submissives, pushing their buttons, finding people's limits and pushing them over it, stated one of his victims, who was lucky enough to survive his encounter with Bruce. MacArthur's first arrest happened after he attacked a male sex worker just after noon on October 31st, 2001, a few weeks after his 50th birthday. He had met the male on a chat line and later had sex with him. MacArthur was invited into the man's apartment to see his Halloween costume, and that's when he struck the man several times from behind with an iron pipe that he often carried. An iron pipe seemed to be his weapon of choice then and in the future. The victim lost consciousness, then called 911 when he awoke. He had suffered injuries to his head and body, and he needed several stitches on the back of his head, his fingers, as well as six weeks of physiotherapy. MacArthur turned himself in after the attack, saying he didn't remember the incident or why he might have done it. I mean, that's pretty convenient, right? He pleaded guilty to charges of assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm, and on April 11, 2003, he received a conditional sentence of two years less a day. Court documents state that the judge in the hearing said, it sounds to me like you're a pretty good person, and it sounds to me like you're not going to be back here anyway. Oh, how wrong that judge would be. Bruce would be back in court for unimaginable crimes created years later. Bruce would be back in court for unimaginable crimes committed years later. MacArthur avoided prisons, spending the first year of his sentence under house arrest, followed by a six-month curfew and three years of probation. During the sentence, he had to stay at least 10 meters from the victim's home or workplace, and he couldn't spend any time with male prostitutes. He was forbidden to possess firearms for 10 years, and he was not to purchase, possess, or consume drugs without a medical prescription. He also had to submit his DNA to a database, and he had to undertake psychological and psychiatric counseling, including anger management. Mom. 
my family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in true accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors chef-crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors Fresh, Never Frozen meals that are also dietitian approved. No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day, because that's half the battle, and I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious, with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code napper50 at factormeals.com slash napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Of course, none of this stopped him from going on to commit heinous crimes against gay men in the future. Because meanwhile, he continued to carry on living a double life. He attended church. 
He hosted lively dinners, and many considered him to be a great friend with a huge heart. Those closest to MacArthur saw no hint of malice, anger, or aggression. But let's talk about what he was doing during these years. As he was in and out of police interviews, never leading to an arrest, he worked as a landscaper, and he was mostly under the radar besides that arrest in 2003, which, let's be real, didn't have much of a consequence on his life. In 2016, a man reported to police that MacArthur tried to strangle him during a consensual sexual encounter, and MacArthur went to police himself, was questioned, but let go. When Andrew Kinsman went missing, things began to change. He was reported missing a day after Toronto's Pride Parade. He was last seen near Parliament in Winchester Streets. His disappearance was noted quickly by friends and police because he was an LGBT activist and a former bartender in Toronto with many friends, and he was the proud owner of a 17-year-old cat. He was a superintendent and a long-term volunteer at the Toronto People with AIDS Foundation. He was described as a loyal friend to many, and people were looking for him. A Toronto police task force probing his disappearance had a promising lead. Using surveillance video and vehicle registration records, they believed they had identified MacArthur as the man who picked up Kinsman up at the exact location and time that he disappeared in Toronto's gay village. Police had also found a calendar entry for someone named Bruce. They got surveillance video from Kinsman's neighborhood and found that he had entered a 2004 Dodge Caravan on June 26, 2017. Police found five Bruce's in the area that owned a red Dodge Caravan, but only one model was from 2004, that of Bruce MacArthur. Police then noted that MacArthur had been known to police from another reported choking incident in 2016, which made him a person of interest in this disappearance. Police obtained surveillance video from MacArthur's apartment, which confirmed that this van did belong to him. But the van was no longer located on the residence. Police continued to search for the van, and it was eventually found at an auto wrecking yard in Cortis, Ontario. DNA evidence, including blood and semen, matching DNA profile of Kinsman, were found in the van. That's when a judge granted the police a warrant to covertly enter MacArthur's apartment and clone his computer and other devices on December 4th. Police officers surveilling MacArthur decided to apprehend him shortly after they saw a young man entering his apartment on January 18, 2018, believing that this man's life may be at risk. Police officers found the young man restrained to a bed when they entered MacArthur's apartment. The man was shaken but luckily not injured. This man, tied to the bed, had arrived in Canada from the Middle East just five years earlier. He was married, and he had not told his family that he was gay. He had met MacArthur through a dating app, Growler, and said that they had met for sex several times. 
he had agreed to keep his relationship with MacArthur secret, and he had actually let himself be handcuffed to MacArthur's steel bed frame. MacArthur put a black bag over his head and tied tape to shut his mouth before police officers interrupted him. Evidence found in MacArthur's apartment shortly after the arrest prompted investigators to charge MacArthur with two counts of first-degree murder in the presumed deaths of Andrew Kinsman and another foreign man, Salim Essen. Their bodies had not been found, but the police felt as if they had enough evidence to move forward. Upon searching MacArthur's home, police found a hard drive that contained photos that he had taken of the victims. Some were posed nude in a fur coat and with cigars between their lips. At least one victim had his eyes taped open in the photos. The photos were stored in eight individual folders, with a ninth folder having been created for the man that was found tied to the bed. From the evidence that the police found, in addition to dismembering his victims, MacArthur would then shave some of their heads and beards and store the hair in Ziploc bags in a shed by the cemetery. MacArthur restrained and sexually assaulted his victims. He strangled them to death with a metal bar with a rope attached to it, very similar to the tool that he had used in previous attacks that had been documented by police. He met the majority of his victims on dating apps and killed them in a planned and deliberate way. They were all connected to Toronto's LGBT community and linked through their physical appearances. Most of the victims sported facial hair and a beard. Six of the victims were immigrants and of South Asian or Middle Eastern descent. They were also similar in ways that made victimization more likely or harder to detect. Some were forced to live parts of their life in secret because of their orientation, Um, Some lacked housing. There is evidence that Mr. MacArthur sought out and exploited these vulnerabilities to continue his crimes undetected. Through further investigation, police discovered that Bruce was actually burying pieces of his victims on properties that he landscaped. Remember, he worked as a landscaper for many years and had many clients throughout the area. Police had several locations that they had to look for. Police issued a plea to anyone who might have used MacArthur's services and deployed cadaver dogs to multiple locations across Toronto. They erected tents and used heaters to thaw frozen ground because, you know, Canada. Forensic investigators combed over MacArthur's two-bedroom apartment for months, removing 1,800 pieces of evidence and photographing every square inch. Police executed search warrants on January 18th at five properties associated with MacArthur and his landscaping business. Now, four of those properties were in Toronto, and there was a nine-acre property about 200 kilometers northeast in Maddock, Ontario. The Maddock property and a home on Conlins Road were residences of Roger Horan, who was a landscaper and a longtime friend of MacArthur. Another property searched was the condominium of MacArthur's former boyfriend. Cadaver dogs took a strong interest in large planter boxes on January 19th. 
The planters had frozen to the ground, requiring heaters to thaw them. A large planter was wrapped on January 22nd and brought to the coroner's office. On January 29th, police announced that they had found the dismembered skeletal remains of at least three people in two of 12 large planter boxes seized from the Leaside residence. Although the remains had not been identified, police had gathered enough evidence to charge MacArthur with three additional counts of first-degree murder in the presumed deaths of Mahid Kehan, Sorush Mahmoudi, who disappeared in 2015, and Dean Lisowick, a homeless man who was never reported missing. On February 8th, police announced that they had found the remains of three more people in planters from the Leaside home, and that one of the six sets of remains belonged to Andrew Kinsman, identified through his fingerprints. On March 5th, police held a police conference and released a photo of an unidentified deceased man alleged to be another of MacArthur's victims. They had exhausted their options in identifying the man, and they were hoping that the public could help. Police later received over 500 tips regarding the photo, and were checking on 22 potential identities. They also announced that a seventh set of remains had been recovered from the Leaside planters. On April 11th, MacArthur was charged with a seventh count of first-degree murder in the death of Abdu Bazir Faizi. On April 16th, MacArthur was charged with an eighth count of first-degree murder in the death of Karushna Kumar Kanagaratnam, whose remains were the seventh set identified from the Leaside planters. Now, let's take a second to acknowledge the victims because, honestly, they are the only ones who really matter. So there was Skandaraj Navaratnam, known as Skanda. He was MacArthur's first victim. The 40-year-old had moved to Canada from Sri Lanka in the 1990s as a refugee, and he had settled into life in the city's gay village. He was described as someone who was very social, very jovial, and always ready to help out his friends. One of his friends said that he was educated, he was a curious man, and he had a strong interest in global affairs, and he was also unbeatable at the game Scrabble. When he disappeared in September 2010, abandoning a new puppy alone in his apartment, his friends called the police. According to court documents, police found a silver bracelet belonging to him in MacArthur's bedroom during their investigation. Skanda had known MacArthur since the early 2000s, and they had dated at one point. Next, we have Abdul Bazir Faizi, 42 years old, disappeared in December 2010. Faizi was married and a father of two. He divided his life between Toronto and Brampton, where he had lived and had his social life in the gay village downtown. His family reported him missing, but because they didn't know his ties to the village, his disappearance largely flew under the radar of Toronto's LGBT community. During MacArthur's sentence hearing, Faizi's wife said in a statement that his daughters, who were aged 6 and 10 when he disappeared, 
often still cry for their father. Faizi's car was found abandoned near a home that Mr. MacArthur had access to at the time of the killing. Mahid Kayan, 58 years old, was believed to have led two separate lives, one with his family and one in the village. Kayhan was Afghan immigrant, and he was the youngest of many siblings. He had a wife and children, and he also frequented many of the bars in the village, where he kept an apartment in the area. His adult son reported him missing in the autumn of 2012 when he could no longer reach him. MacArthur told police that he had employed him at one point as a landscaper helper, and he claimed to have a brief sexual relationship with him. Police believe that Kaihan was killed around the 18th of October, 2012. Sorush Mahmoudi, 50 years old, was a refugee from Iran and reported missing by his wife. In a statement to the court, she called him her soulmate and said that she had been overwhelmed by grief at his brutal slaying. Police believe that Mahmoudi was killed in August 2015 and a coat found with his DNA on it in MacArthur's van during their investigation confirmed that he had been there. Kirushna Kumar Kanagaratnam, 37 years old, came to Canada on the MV Sunsea in 2010, which was a ship carrying almost 500 Sri Lankan asylum seekers that arrived in Canada waters that summer. His refugee claim was denied and he was ordered to be deported. So police and his family didn't report him missing because they had just assumed that he was in hiding. Kana Garatnam was close to his family and he talked to them regularly. Police have said it's not clear how he came into contact with MacArthur, given that he had no clear ties to Toronto's village. Evidence suggests that he was killed in January 2016. Dean Lisowick, 47 years old, was MacArthur's sixth victim, but unlike the others killed by MacArthur, he was never reported missing to police. The 47-year-old was often found staying in homeless shelters in Toronto, and he had worked in the sex trade in order to, you know, afford the necessities of life. In a statement read in court, his daughter said, I will always have to live with knowing that I will never have a relationship with my father. He also kept in touch with his parents until his struggles with mental illness landed him on the streets. But his uncle told the court that even then, he would still occasionally send cards to his mother that had been searched out carefully for their expressions of love. His name was added in February 2018 to Toronto Homeless Memorial, which remembers those who have died as a result of homelessness in the city. He is believed to have been killed sometime around late April 2016. MacArthur kept some of Lisa Wick's jewelry, which police later found in his apartment. Salim Essen, 44, was originally from Turkey and came to Canada in 2013. He disappeared from his home near the village in April 2017. He was very friendly, kind-hearted, open, independent-minded, and curious, 
passionate about learning new things, gardening, exploring new places, and meeting new people, Essen's brother said in a family statement in June. His tender and kind humanity came before everything else. The court heard in February that Essen spoke to his best friend every day, and when he didn't reply to a text, his friend reported him missing. Essen had struggled in the past with substance abuse, but friends told the court during MacArthur's sentencing that he had reached a turning point and he hoped to help others in their recovery. He was described as a nature lover who enjoyed managing a cafe. He had a passion for sociology and philosophy, and he was generous and selfless with his friends. MacArthur kept a notebook owned by SN, which police later found in the serial killer's apartment. Andrew Kinsman, 49 years old, whose disappearance in June 2017 sparked a community-wide search and rekindled rumors of a serial killer in the gay village. Kinsman was active in the city's LGBT community and friends hung posters of the missing 49-year-old around the village when he went missing. He wanted to make the world a better place for those struggling to survive, his sister Karen Coles told the court. His sister described him as someone who, under his gruff demeanor, cared deeply about other people and who championed social justice issues. An extraordinary, quirky, and caring individual, she said. Police believe Kinsman was sexually involved with MacArthur, and they found the entry Bruce in Kinsman's diary on June 26, 2017, the day that police believe he was killed. Eight victims, eight bodies discovered, although police believe there may have been more. When I was first looking into this case, I kept asking myself, why the hell wasn't this man looked into more carefully? He had a very clear MO and prior reports. It kind of reminded me of the Dahmer case, where things should have been investigated, things should have been blatantly obvious to others, and they should have been seen, but they simply weren't because they were crimes against the LGBT community. Since the 70s, gay crimes in Toronto have thought to have been mostly ignored. Since February 18, 1975, 14 gay men have been murdered in Toronto, and eight of these killings still remain unsolved. That's just one of the reasons I wanted to cover this story and shine a little light on an issue that seems to be mostly hidden in the dark. I believe mostly because many of these men have been forced to live double lives. Or it's easy enough for people to say it was just a lover's quarrel when there's no traumatized female victim to look to. So that's the story for tonight. If you have anything to add or any thoughts or opinions to share, I would absolutely love to hear them. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to reach out, you can always find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash serial napper. That's S-E-R-I-A-L-N-A-P-P-E-R on Apple or on Spotify and you don't need a premium account. Just search Serial Napper and I should come up. 
So until next time, don't be a Dahmer. Bye.